Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Folding Pocket to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hi, Kat. Hi, Kat. So can I say, Richard, you're looking a bit um, flat today. Well, uh, flat is favourite, actually. I wish my paunch looked a bit flatter, and I thank the digital technology for making me appear so. But I'm joining you from Whithorn in Galloway in Scotland, and I have trespassed upon the good will of some friends who've allowed me to work their computer. In fact, I can't work their computer. I've had half the town has been out trying to work their computer. So you're the disembodied one, really, this time, isn't aren't you? Well, yes. I'm sorry, Richard, but part of the reason I do this is so that I can see you in the flesh, because we now no longer ne- live near each other. So this is rather a, well, trying moment. Oh, well, make me feel bad. <laughs> Go on. Um, and Kat, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've just come back from three weeks of digging holes in the ground. Yes, yes. we did a bit of that and found rather a lot of things, didn't we? we well, did. I noticed that um, the park at Althorpe was all over the place because you and your people <laughs> have been tearing it to pieces, discovering exciting Roman things. We well, yes. Uh, what are we allowed to say, Kat? I think we can say there were 100 coins. Yes, so technically, as people who listened last week will know, actual treasure. And it's a hoard. Yes. Yes, everything from a bit of a comb to a little bit of a gold earring, glass from windows, glass from goblets. It was really exciting. And mm. a well, don't mm. forget the well. Yeah, but not a chariot or anything. You know, just say it. I wanted Baudicere's chariot, but maybe that's a little spoiled. <laughs> next year, next year. <laughs> <laughs> So we should probably get straight into our topics for this week. And I think I'm due to start this week leading the way with something I could probably do with a little bit more of right now to wake me up, which is sugar. As you know, I quite like choosing tiny little (laughs) topics. I should probably go a bit smaller next time. But I'm interested in especially the early history of sugar, obviously, is one of those remarkable things that completely transform the modern world, well, in some really, really quite negative ways. But I was interested in those, how it actually got there before we get into the slave trade especially as well. But this is really quite interesting moment, I think, in the 16th century when it's really starting to go from a commodity that's very much for the wealthy and the aristocrats and, and the, the royals and, and people with a lot of money 
which is represented quite nicely in 1591 when Queen Elizabeth I is travelling through Hampshire and the Earl of Hertford has laid on this big display and banquet for her. And as a part of that, he's commissioned this huge collection of sugar works displayed in her honour, including Her Majesty's arms, there are castles, forts, soldiers figured out of sugar, exotic beasts like whales and dolphins. And all of this, this huge tradition really at this point of creating artwork really more or less out of sugar. So it's not just being eaten, but it's also being used for display and what I, I didn't realise is that it's actually a much older tradition and it goes back to the Middle Ages. One of the first accounts of people making sugar sculptures is from the 11th century. In Egypt, a, a visitor reported that the Sultan had used 73,000 kilos of sugar to make sculptures. At an Ottoman festival in Istanbul in 1582, there was a, a huge sugar model, animals, a castle that needed four men to carry it, all to celebrate the uh, circumcision of the Sultan's son. So at this point, we, we sort of have this huge use of it. But I always thought that sugar was a New World crop. So obviously we're familiar with the really quite horrific industry, the sugar industry in the New World. But it originally comes from East Asia and probably dates back as far as 8000 BC, but just as pure sugar cane and, and nothing else. And moves across to India where it's refined and then over to the Islamic world and also to the Mediterranean. So the, the sort of foundations of the sugar industry as we know it really kicks off in the Mediterranean. But do you know how it came to North Europe at all? No, no, not at all. So it was actually in the Crusades. So the Crusaders who travelled to Palestine who were starving, basically, and they needed some energy and they were given sugarcane and took it with them back to Europe as well. But it was that Mediterranean, so places like Sicily became a sort of a key site for producing it. It was really in the 15th century that the uh, big transformation took place that brought it to other parts of the world. So with the Portuguese going into the Atlantic they go to Madeira and realise that they can take this crop with them and that it does really, really well in that landscape. Take advantage of slaves from Africa as well and really starting this kind of blueprint for what later became the, the sort of industry as we know it. And then it was with the explorers, people like Columbus takes sugarcane with him. He'd been to Madeira. He starts planting it and... That really takes it across to places like Brazil with the Portuguese and that becomes the starting point. So by the 1600s, this becomes a massive industry and because it requires so much manpower to actually plant and process the crops, there's not enough of the indigenous population which is being pushed out and in some places essentially desecrated. That's where the slave trade starts really and the sort of very dark history of it which I think most people are quite familiar with. And what about honey? I mean, presumably honey was always accessible to people before sugar. Absolutely. So honey goes back so, so much further for, you know, many thousands of, of years. And it's interesting because they have this link. I mean, sugar, I think, sort of really replaces or adds to the same sort of uses as honey and honey being used as, a, as an extra sort of... But, but was, was honey actually something that people had access to? Or was that, again, a preserve of the wealthy? So the earliest history, we don't really know. I mean, it's clearly a commodity because it's quite difficult to get hold of. So it wasn't quite as luxurious, though. 
there's definitely lots of archaeological evidence from it going back to quite early populations and culturally as well, especially in places like the Islamic world, honey, and even in, in the Bible. So Richard, sort of all the biblical stories of you know, land of milk and honey and all of that, yeah. it's, it's a very important part, isn't it? But here's my question, Kat, if I may. Do you think sugar was to traders what the book was to Jeff Bezos? Why did Amazon take off because it did books. Why did they do books? Because they were shippable. Do you think that our ravening sweet tooth happened because sugar in its tradable form became such a lucrative cargo and so easy to ship in a way that honey could never be? Yeah, and you can produce it in vast quantities. You can't do that with honey. Sugar is also, I mean, it's obviously, it is very, very addictive. As we know now, part of the, the big problem with sugar in today's world is that it is an addictive food. It actually affects the dopamine levels in your brain. So it's a sort of reward cycle. So people are going to want it. And, and I say you can actually do it on a vast scale, especially if you take advantage of enslaved people. So, yeah, I quite like that analogy with, with Amazon. I mean, so often the case, isn't it? It's a, a sort of combination of technology driving markets, driving appetites that, well, changes the world. Didn't it? I suppose that sugar trade opened up more nefarious trades too across the Atlantic. And you know. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because sugar was around for such a long time, but it was mm -hmm. really when they were starting to have these new, more industrialised processes of refining it. That's when it starts going wrong, when the Europeans get involved and try to make money of it. So people were enjoying sugar for really quite a long time. And even for things like thinking of it as medicinal, which again is something that people had done with honey as well. This idea of using it in the Mary Poppins words, a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down. That goes back to, I think it's Lucretius in the first century BC, who says that Roman doctors actually encouraged use of something sweet for foul tasting medicines. And we have some Islamic texts as well, some early medical texts, again, saying the same thing, but specifically with sugar. So this idea that it's it's actually beneficial but you know people were using it as a medicine for really quite a long time and actually interestingly I didn't know this but it has been shown in studies to actually reduce pain so if infants are given sucrose or sugar water or something like that premature babies in neonatal units when they have uh, bloods taken from their heels then it will stop them from crying so much but that is to do with the taste apparently because if they get that through a tube a feeding tube it doesn't have the same effect. So it's something to do with the sweetness and the, the taste buds. When did sugar become a, a mass market thing that everyone could afford? That's really by the 1600s. So that's when it's starting to come in from those uh, markets in the Americas. That's when you start to be able to buy it pretty much everywhere in Europe. You've got these huge big processing plants in, in places like the Netherlands and, and in London as well, refineries. And people are making a massive amount of money on it. And, you know, it becomes such a big cultural element, really. I was interested, is there a sort of cultural factor as to whether a particular nation or society develops a sweet tooth or not isn't it are there places where people don't have raging sweet tooth are there places where dental health is considerably improved because people eat turnips all day long instead <laughs> of sugar beet well i definitely think places where they don't have access to as much sugar so obviously the access is one of them and if you just have something like honey i suppose to refine i mean refined sugar is a really bad one any fine carbohydrate can do the same thing to your teeth but sugar is just people are eating so much of it so I'm sure it's access 
more than anything that's made it a lot worse. Because if you go back historically, different, you can see it in the archaeological record, you can see it in people's teeth and how that access to those refined sugars are changing. You've got some horrific, I mean, it's quite fun to look at all these ancient teeth and actually see some that are absolutely beautiful and perfect. And then sugar comes in and they are not. Oh, and it's a thing now, isn't it? I mean, dentists complain very much of the state of health of children's teeth now because there's so much sugar added to the things that people buy for their children in supermarkets because the children go on at them about it because they've become kind of addicted to sugar. It's a sort of toddler crack. Yes, it is. And actually one test recently, people, they, they seem to argue about this all the time, but there was one study that showed that it may even be as addictive as, as cocaine as a substance because of the effect that it actually has on the brain. And when did um, fake sugar become fashionable then, all those sweeteners? I remember my Ooh. mother and stepfather having that. What's that little blue tin called? Hermesitas. Oh, yeah. Years and years ago. And when did that all happen? I don't know, actually. That's a really good question, because I guess it's, these are artificial, aren't they? Chemical producers as opposed to natural other sweeteners. But I think that is quite a recent sort of 20... 20- Famously, some of those very well-known American non-sugar sweeteners are, are meant to be not good for you at all. Yeah, I know. There's, so there's all this debate, but I guess you have to be a little bit cynical as well and, and think, you know, how much money is involved in this still in this sugar industry yeah. and are we getting there? <laughs> I was into a, a livery do a while ago and I fell into conversation at the Guildhall with a sugar trader. Fascinating bloke. And he told me two things which I found quite startling. One is that sugar is an extremely volatile cargo. There's something about the way sugar interacts with the air that makes it extremely potentially explosive. And you have to really handle the cargo very, very carefully because sugar is a dangerous cargo. And the other thing he told me is that the trade is worth so much and the people who trade it are so skillful and industrial in their processes that sugar is massively overused, even sometimes for purposes where people don't want sweetness, they just want a bulk a product. So they'll use sugar, which is denatured, to take away its sweetness, but just to bulk up a product. But it gives you still all the negative health impact that you'd get if you were actually satisfying your craving for sweetness too, which is a bad thing. Well, I think sugar sounds, and we're not giving it a good rap today, but I think it's well-deserved and well-understood. <laughs> Definitely. Would you like to know my favourite fact as oh, well? Oh, yes. yes, please. There's quite a lot of them. I thought this was quite interesting. So with some of those indigenous populations that the first European encountered in the uh, Caribbean islands, one of those actually, so I fell down a bizarre rabbit hole of cannibals and cannibalism because one of the first groups encountered by Columbus were the island Caribs or Caribs who give name to the Caribbean and apparently it given rise to the word cannibal. So the Caribs or the Canibs, um, he didn't quite know what they were called. They were allegedly ferocious uh, nomadic hunters who ate people. And so from that and from sort of these people they were trying to exploit for the sugar industry came the word for cannibal. But I think the recent research now uh, suggests they are absolutely not at all, but it was part of that whole myth for showing why they could be exploited and should really be pushed away. So there we go, some sugar to cannibals. <laughs> That's the kind of step we like to take on this yes. show. <laughs> Just a nimble jump. Yeah. <laughs> Charles, just to answer your question about sweeteners, they actually, uh, artificial sweeteners first entered the food industry in the 1800s, <laughs> but actually became a diet aid in the 1950s with the uh, introduction of a sweetener called Cyclamate to the American market, with co- which coincided with the diet soda boom. 
of the 1950s. And then just one point, Kat, on you mentioned A Spoonful of Sugar and referencing Mary Poppins. The song Spoonful of Sugar was written by the Sherman brothers. And the son of one of the Sherman brothers said that the song came about because when he was a child, he got the polio vaccine. And his father, working on Mary Poppins at the time, asked how his day had been. And he told him about the vaccine. And his father said, didn't it hurt? And he said, no, I, they put a, a sugar cube onto a spoon and they ate it. And he said, yeah, my father called my uncle and the next day they sat and wrote a spoonful of sugar together. Goodness. There we go. I had Fantastic. the polio vaccine that way. So I did remember. I. I remember that sugar cube. As a little cube. boy going to this, Do you remember it, Charles? Yeah. I remember I went to the doctors and thinking it would be a fairly miserable outcome and ending up getting this rather interesting sugar thing. Which was <laughs> yes, it went treat. brown, I if I remember again. right, but it, it tasted yeah. okay. I just yeah. got stabbed <laughs> in the arm. <laughs> I've missed out now. So... That leads us to the next topic. And Richard, is over to you. And you're going to be telling us about the wonderful world of knitting and knitting patterns today. Yes. Well, now, here's some interesting things. As we know, everything that we discuss sooner or later devolves to the Viking culture, correct? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Did you know that knitting is actually one of the youngest crafts? I mean, much, much younger than weaving or sewing. That's been around for donkey's years. But the evidence of knitting is actually much later. And some of it, Kat, I have to say, comes from... Now, is it the Ertebola culture of Denmark? Am I right? Some Viking sort of culture of Yeah, I think that's pre-Viking. Pre-Viking. I know it's very early. Yeah. But they used to use a system which was thought to be knitting, but it turns out not to be knitting at all. But it's something now in English we call it nail binding, but I think the Danish word is nail binding or something. Does that sound right? Nailer binding. Yes, that's the Nailer one. binding. Yeah, that's right. Because we thought we had this early knitted stuff, and it turned out not to be knitted, but to be made by what we call nail binding, which actually uses a single needle and kind of a looping a loop round a thread. Knitting itself, the evidence for that is much later. There's a splendid pair of red socks with a special toe piece in the Victorian Albert Museum. Coptic, I think they're 4th century, they're certainly very early. And also some splendid Egyptian socks in blue and white with Islamic texts knitted into them and a turned heel. But that's later too. It seems to have arrived in Europe knitting from Egypt. It was Egyptian manufacturing that promoted knitting because nail binding was such a laborious and slow process. They needed to speed it up. So two needles, clitter-clatter, clitter-clatter, along came knitting. The Moors brought it into Europe, into Spain. And there's evidence of knitting. There's a rather lovely portrait by Lorenzetti of the Madonna of Humility. I think it's about 1350. And in it, the Madonna is knitting. Very unlikely that the Madonna herself would have done that in Palestine in the first century. But it was a sign of knitting being something that women could do in the home. All of a sudden, this idea that you could turn your hand to a craft in the home through knitting. Knitting patterns, of course, well, in a way, they sort of arose spontaneously because knitting happened in different sorts of ways in different places. I speak to you from Scotland. Scotland plays an important part in this. One of the first schools of knitting established was in Scotland in the 1490s. And it was the custom then for people to knit woolen caps. Now, if you were a person of quality and degree, you would have a velvet cap, but velvet was beyond the economic reach of most people. So they had knitted caps, and they were known as Scotch bonnets. And until the 18th century, if you were to think of a garment that would be synonymous with Scotland, not the kilt, no, 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 that came along later. It was, in fact, the Scotch bonnet. 
And that is why chilli peppers in the Caribbean are known as Scotch bonnets, because it was the association with Scotland. So tartan was a bit of a latecomer. The Scotch bonnet was the thing. Knitting patterns as we know them. Well, there's the Gansey, of course, the traditional fisherman's jumper. And that, too, has a sort of Scottish origin, or certainly northeastern England origin. And it was the fishing communities along the northeast coast of our islands. And they would knit these seamen's jumpers, and they were knitted on round needles, so they were seamless. And the idea was, if a fisherman drowned, then you would be able to haul him out using a boat hook, and you would catch him by his jumper, and the jumper would not come apart at the seams, for there were no seams. And also, each community knitted its own distinctive pattern, so you would be able to identify where that unfortunate drowned fisherman came from. So there's your Gansey. Is that the same as a Guernsey? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Same thing. Guernsey and Gansey mean the same thing. Why the name of that island in the Channel should be attached to a garment associated with the coast of the northeast, I don't know. But that's what happened. Knitting patterns in... Again, Scotland plays a very important part here. I want you to imagine 63 George Street, Edinburgh, in 1840. Now, if you were going to 63 George Street, Edinburgh, in 1840, 1850, around that time, you would probably be a lady of fashion because you would be going to visit Mrs Jane Gorgain's shop. Mrs Jane Gorgain, a humbly-born woman, married an enterprising merchant and started importing Berlin wool into Scotland. Berlin wool, made from merino, so it was fine and easily worked. But it benefited from the invention of aniline dye, which was actually pioneered, funnily enough, by the son of the composer Felix Mendelssohn, Paul Mendelssohn. He, in Germany, invented a way of fixing dye into wool by using this aniline process, it derived from coal tar. So chemistry met aesthetics. It produced these richly coloured yarns. Mauve, mauveine, was the result of aniline dye, also helped by a chemist called Perkin, funnily enough. Anyway... So these would arrive, and all of a sudden ladies were able to knit garments using these beautifully coloured yarns. And because they were beautifully coloured, well, they could then weave patterns or knit patterns. And so Mrs Gorgain produced a book called The Ladies' Assistant in Knitting. And that contained the first knitting patterns that became hugely popular. The book ran to 22 editions, hugely popular, both in England, both in America. In America, the wife of George Washington was a mad keen knitter and got all the ladies, not of the court, but of the White House, to join her in knitting madly away. The ladies of the court of Queen Victoria got madly keenly into knitting, and Jane Gorgains not only supplied the knitting patterns, but she provided also the yarn. So she was an enterprising business person. And that really caused an explosion of interest in knitting and the dissemination of her patterns around the world. Patterns, of course, varied for different reasons. In the Second World War, there was a massive, massive rise in knitting. The WI were conscripted to the war effort, of course. And on the home front, what you could do was knit garments for our brave boys on the front. But the patterns were altered in order to facilitate them in their military endeavours. For example, mittens were made with extra long arms because of the cold suffered by people on the North Atlantic convoys, for example. Balaclavas were made with special flaps so as not to interfere with people signalling either on a wireless set or on a telephone. So that changed things too. And there was also a leisure jumper invented then for women off-duty. It was called the off-duty jumper and it was something that you could wear to signify that you were indeed off-duty and enjoying what scrap of leisure you could in wartime. 
Do you know how to knit, Richard? Well, Kat, I would like to say yes, I do know how to knit. As a rather nerdy boy at school, I was disinclined to play football and I asked if I might join the girls knitting. So I did have two big fat needles when I was a little boy at St Peter's School in Kettering. And I did learn the elements of knitting. However, I did not take it through into adulthood. Well, um, you should start David, it now in your retirement. Well, do you know what? I just don't think I can be quite asked because it's it's kind of one of those things that you... I love watching people who can knit, knit. I actually have a, a great friend of mine's son went to be interviewed for a, a school in Kent and age 12 he took his knitting needles there and he reported back, they're all very odd, Daddy, because they tease me for knitting and it is quite out there, isn't it, as something to do as a young boy. Didn't seem so at the time, is all I can say. But I think um, it's marvellous. Uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful to have any of these crafts. Going back to the Scottish element here, and also looking at the wartime associations with knitting patterns that you've said, I believe that the Fair Isle pattern, as it were, the whole industry there, really came from the wrecking of the, some of the ships in the Spanish Armada, with Spaniards crawling a, aboard the, the island when they had been flailing around in the sea. Well, there's a rather dramatic story about that. Imagine, if you will, it's 1588 and you're under sail on the Armada's flagship under the command of Admiral Duke Medina de Sidonia. You know, he was a terrible admiral, by the way, and he wrote a letter to the King of Spain when the King of Spain asked him if he would um, be in command of his Armada, saying he didn't want to go because he got terribly seasick. <laughs> but um, the King of Spain's advisers did not show that letter to the King, and off he went. And he did his best, but, you know, he wasn't very good. And also uh, nature conspired against him. And the story goes that the Grand Griffin, the flagship, with him in command, he ran it aground at Fair Isle, and the sailors, those who survived that, got onto the island, which was not a particularly hospitable place, not very much to offer them. But the long and the short of it was, was that they taught the Fair Islanders how to knit using different coloured yarns, and that produced the famous Fair Isle sweater. So a very early example of how a knitting pattern came about due to a combination of military endeavour and bad weather. Ah, there we go. Do you want my favourite fact? Yes, please. Well, it's also got a military thing too. Imagine, if you will, occupied Belgium in 1940s. The armies of the Third Reich uh, had occupied that country and there was a lively resistance to their efforts to subdue the Belgians. And sitting in the window of a house, overlooking the German troops going hither and thither through the streets and places of their town. Belgian ladies knitting away. Knit one, pearl one, knit, knit one, pearl one, knit, pearl, 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 knit one. Do you know what they were doing? They were actually knitting Morse code into their garments as a means of transmitting to the Allies German troop oh, movements amazing. that were undiscovered. Quite slow, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's an invaluable it, it, intelligence. Yes. And if you think about it, the penalty, if you'd been caught transmitting intelligence to Allied forces, would have been swinging. So all the Germans would have said, oh, look at those nice Belgian ladies doing their knitting, not knowing that, in fact, those Belgian ladies were transmitting their movements to the enemy. Excellent. I love that. And I think we've got a comment here from our disembodied voice. That's actually not the first time that knitting has been used to sort of send secret messages. George Washington 
stationed essentially one of America's most famous knitters, a lady called Molly Rinker, who'd run a tavern in Germantown in Philadelphia. And he stationed her on a mountaintop and she would sit and knit all day overlooking the British troops. And actually what she would do would be sending messages in the wool about where the troop movements were going. So not the first time that that had happened. Uh, and you also I mean, about... now I kind of wonder if that's actually true, don't well... you? Because it sounds, it's got the character of urban myth about it already. This is a well-researched fact, Richard. She ran the Buck Tavern in Germantown in Philadelphia with her husband until the British commandeered the building and sent her husband away. And she had to stay and serve the British troops and serve them she did, bringing them strong drinks every evening after dinner. But when she went to her room at night, uh, it wasn't to sleep. She wrote meticulous and copious notes full of information that soldiers discussed all evening whilst drinking and passed them on to the uh, the authorities. So she's a well-known... Well, there you go. I mean, that would have been my message, I think, to my cruel classmates when I was a little boy at St Peter's <laughs> school, school brandishing manuals. I might not have been playing football, but I could have played a key part in a resistance movement to an occupying force. <laughs> and you mentioned Guernsey as well. It was merely because the amount of sheep that were on the island. The Guernsey jumper is based on a Tudor knitted shirt. And did you know that Mary, Queen of Scots, wore a pair of white Guernsey stockings? when she was beheaded in 1587. Oh, with the, the yeah. dog Had to get a beheading skirts. in somewhere, didn't you? Yeah. Well, there was a beheading, and she had a particularly bad one. It went on for several straits. But there we are, not going to fall down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Well, also, no one knew she was wearing a wig till she was beheaded, and when they held up the head, that became rather obvious. So all in all, a hellish end for her, and a very undignified one, too. At least she had good stockings. Yes. <laughs> her son, James I, pulled down Fotheringay, because he was permanently in pain about where his mother had died, that he had it destroyed. Charles, I couldn't help but notice that you adopt, I have to say, the minority pronunciation of fothering gay rather than fothering hay. Now, I don't want to start something running again, as we've had with <laughs> cuneiform and various other Qumran writing gates, but fothering gay, not fothering hay. Well, a lot of these old names, I think it goes down to the fact that there was no standardised spelling until Victorian times, so they would have been pronounced in different ways. I've always called it Fotheringay. But, Classic um, get out. I stand corrected by a man. <laughs> no, no, I'm not correcting you. I'm no, really I honestly don't know. I do know it's one of those funny ones. There's, across the hill from us at Althorp, there's, or Ultra, depending on the pronunciation, <laughs> there's Holdenby or Homeby Palace, or was there. I think I go with the BBC pronunciation department that if there are two established ways of pronouncing something, then that neither of them is wrong. Speaking of, of language, before we go on to the next topic, Charles, if you were going to learn one language, which one would it be? And obviously there's only one right answer to that question. Well, I'm going to go further south than you're expecting. I'd go for Spanish because it's so useful around the world. And I'm really upset that French is the sort of the main language that people learn in England because it's not entirely useful. And what about you, Richard? You've been travelling a lot. Well, I acquired French, uh, I learned it at school, and then I spent a lot of time in France. So I'm better in French than anything else, although I'm not particularly good in French. I found it enormously useful because the cuisine of that country I'm tremendously fond of. <laughs> but as I've got older, what I wish I knew now was German, because so many of the things I'm interested in come from Germany or are in German, and I'm hopeless in German. I can barely order Frühstück. <laughs> Well, weirdly, I do know German from one year's O-level. We were brainwashed at Eton audiovisually, and I can still speak German or recognise it from that one moment when I was 15 or 16. Kat, as a Scandinavian, you probably have 14 languages fluently. <laughs> no, 
quite, but... Four? No. You have four? Well, yes. A German, actually, I did learn because my parents are both fluent in German. They studied in Germany. And so the language at home, when they tried to say something that the kids weren't meant to understand, was always German. So they would say things, and I'd hear my name and sort of all these voices speaking in German. So I sort of had to learn it. And my mum, who was a language teacher, was quite militant about it. So we'd go to Germany on holiday and she'd send me off with money and obviously I couldn't speak English either. So the only way to buy anything in the shop was to actually work out what to say. So that was quite effective as a method, really. But why? Why, oh why, are these glottal questions <laughs> on your lips, Kat? Well, there is a reason. Because if you are looking to add another language, you can try Babbel, a language app built around having real-life conversations. And actually, Babbel are offering our rabbit hole listeners a lifetime subscription with a 60% discount if you use the promo code RABBIT. All you have to do is go to babbel.com forward slash lifetime and use promo code RABBIT for 60% on Babbel for a lifetime. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash lifetime promo code RABBIT. The offer is only valid until June the 30th. Babbel, learn a new language in just 15 minutes a day. Kat, yes. I must confess a fault, I'm afraid. <gasps> set that up by saying, why are these glottal questions on your lips? I meant, of course, glossal questions oh. on your lips and that's because I was forgetting my Greek <laughs> well maybe you should do Greek then on Babel <laughs> well do you know what my academic my academic field is Greek but it's Koine Greek of your know, first century Mediterranean literature so it's not that's very just... good in a restaurant actually but I'm pretty good on mind-body dualism well on that note <laughs> shall we move on to the next topic so that's moving us from languages to Charles, your topic, which is hangover cures. And I, I don't know whether you've been researching this in a sort of practical or theoretical way this well, week. for the last 40 years, I suppose. But I would say this is mind-body as well, because you're, it is extraordinary that the human being poisons himself to such an extent that he makes himself as ill as if he was having a migraine. But I'm looking for cures here, Kat. I'm looking internationally. I'm looking through the, the millennia. Only 25 years ago, a South Korean businessman developed Dawn 808, with uh, Dawn standing for drinkers are winners now. And he had an alder leaf tea, which he said would accelerate alcohol breakdown. Sadly, I think we're going to find there aren't any hard and fast cures for the hangover. But let's look at some worthy efforts over the centuries. I'd like to start by talking about the ancient Assyrians, who would consume a mixture of ground bird's beaks and myrrh. European doctors in the Middle Ages recommended raw eel. People in European times thought that a raw eel would somehow soak up the alcohol in their system. Mongolians liked to eat pickled sheep's eyes. Chinese went with a more palatable dose. They had green tea. Germans, as you may remember from your time there, Kat, with your parents, if they ever said they were going to have some Katerfrühstück, that was a, a breakfast full of things that were mainly pickled. Herrings, pickles and goulash itself. Did you know the Russians don't actually have a cure as such that they consume, but they like to starve themselves and have cold and hot saunas and swims and also flagellate themselves, probably in, in reaction to the pain of it all, but they believe that would speed up the blood system and get the poison out of their blood very quickly. I've been reading an awful lot about the ancient Romans and Greeks recently, and I, I really want to bring some of that in. And, and really, one of their things was accepting that the hangover was not desirable. So they would like to try and prevent them. 
And this was done by, well, the poet Horace recommended a, a dose of shrimps with African snails. And gladiators were said to have had deep-fried canaries <laughs> as a snack uh, to purge themselves. And Pliny the Elder, who was a philosopher in the first century AD, he thought that raw owl's eggs, this takes the biscuit for me from now, would cure an appetite for wine. So, in fact, he would put things into wine. Rotten grapes and sea anemones, really, were put in there. He was saying that if you put this in wine, after a few times of trying it, you would never want to have it again. Other people looked at prevention and cure by adding things to themselves, tying cabbage leaves or, or stringing laurel leaves underneath their, their heads so that there was somehow an aroma, I think, which was meant to be a good thing. But the winner in the most disgusting ways of curing a hangover was invented by a man called Goddard in the 17th century. And he recommended that the basic ingredients for a hangover cure were five pounds of human skull taken from people who had to have been hanged or died a violent death, mixed with two pounds of dried viper, two pounds of red stag antler and two pounds of ivory. Well, this didn't always work, you'll be amazed to know. And uh, <laughs> Sir Edward Walpole, MP, grandfather of, the, of Walpole, the long-term prime minister, he died aged 68 after taking this. And people said... He had very ill effects, gave him convulsions and a numbness that he was most sad spectacle. But I think we all remember uh, the different ways that uh, people had tackled this. Coming down to a distillation of something so nasty, which is the prairie oyster. Mm. Now, the prairie oyster is a raw egg with a spicy sauce, a sort of Tabasco, salt and pepper. You would knock it down in one, with Worcestershire sauce, of course. And this gained a, a lot of popularity with the 1916 novel by P.G. Woodhouse, in which Jeeves, the sort of standby butler who gets everything right, has the wonderful line where he says that he, he presents the hapless Bertie Wooster with his bracer of Worcestershire sauce, raw egg and pepper. And he says, gentlemen have told me they find it extremely invigorating after a late evening. So that was the prairie oyster. But I have to put a health warning on that because the latest scientific advice on that is don't do it. The raw egg is more likely to give you gastroenteritis than to cure you of your hangover. So beware of the prairie oyster. Do you know about the mountain oyster? I don't. I'd love to learn about that. Well, the mountain oyster is the sort of altitude version of the prairie oyster. It's considered very good for hangovers too. But it is the skinned and deep fried testicles of bulls. Yes, well, testicles of bulls and pizzles, which is the manhood of bulls, that's long been seen as a way of restoring virility, particularly mm. in Italian culture. Um, and that virility is attached to hangover cures. If you were feeling more virile, you were meant to be able to dissipate your hangover. But also, you, you got me onto a, a mixture, too, of... Uh, there's a thing called a Mongolian Mary. And <laughs> that... I met him in the Vauxhall Tavern in 1992. <laughs> well, actually, it goes back to a terrible Mongolian uh, drink. It goes back to the times of Genghis Khan, who prescribed two pickled sheep's eyes, and this could be mixed in with tomato juice. So that's your Mongolian Mary. I have to say the most surprising cures that probably don't work are those of the Native American tribes who believed in sweat swishing. So that was when you were feeling drunk, you worked yourself up into a, an enormous sweat and then drank it. And that was meant to help you. And then in Puerto Rico, before you got stuck into a lot of alcohol, 
people used to believe that if you rubbed a slice of lemon or lime into your armpit on your drinking arm and then licked it, that was going to stave off a hangover too. <laughs> I don't think I want to try. Um, but what do we can, actually know now, though? About Is there anything that you came across that is a genuinely proven proper cure or are they all just wild? There's like none that's a cure. What's good for you is a lot of um, non-alcoholic liquid and electrolytes. So... You know, the Russians came across these sort of the pickling juices, you know, drinking a lot of things that what we call gherkins and, and things, they're just called cucumbers in, in the Russian panoply of cures. So people stumbled across the right thing. What I found looking at all of these things, there were extraordinary things like in the Wild West, Americans believed if you drank water with rabbit droppings in, that would help. There's nothing in there that's good for you apart from the water. The Vietnamese grind rhino horn into hot water and drink it. Again, it's the water. So they were stumbling on things that were good for you. In terms of cure, the most recent scientific study says there isn't one. But it looks as though, and this hasn't been properly looked at, but if you have things like Korean pear juice, clove extract, Japanese raisin tree and red ginseng, they all help, but they don't cure. And it's, uh, you know, I, I go to Canada quite a lot and the Canadians are hearty eaters and they eat a thing called poutine, which sounds absolutely disgusting. But one of my sons had a hangover and it cured him. And that's uh, French fries with revolting looking Canadian cheese curd draped all over it, smothered in a, a thick gravy with peppercorns. Absolutely disgusting to sound, but apparently a really good help in, in crisis. I want to flick a V sign in the face of science because mm. I have discovered a foolproof and brilliant hangover cure. Brilliant. Step with me, if you will, to Scotland. And it was Burns Night. I was staying with my friends who are farmers in Perthshire. And we celebrated Burns Night first with beer, then with wine, and then with whiskey. What a terrible and idea. And I woke up the next day. Well, it was, I mean, it was a great idea at the time. And let me tell you, no haggis was ever more thrillingly hymned as it made its entrance. But the next day, oh my word, I honestly thought they were going to have to call the air ambulance to get me. I felt so awful. And then, I don't know what it was, flash of inspiration, perhaps divine providence, who knows. But I found myself in the kitchen and I made myself a bowl of Frosties. And I ate the bowl of Frosties, crunch, 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 not great with a hangover. Something about that bowl of Frosties restored me to absolutely perfect health within well, about I think that goes back to cat's sugar, actually. Yes. I think the sugar does give you a bit of a rush. But you will come crack... Well, maybe you didn't, but a lot of people find that the sugary ones don't really work because you come down with a crash. I mean, there's, there's one in Namibia, which is a lot of sugar and cream... It's called buffalo milk, but there's no buffalo milk in it. It's got a lot of alcohol. And I think the fat and the sugar is, is seen as a, a great help. And in fact, Coca-Cola was originally marketed as a, a hangover cure with, um, you know, when it had actually got cocaine in it, <laughs> as well as cola nuts. As someone famous for enduring hangovers, I'm thinking of you. Do you have a favourite cure? Yes, fried eggs with toast that has Marmite on it. So I think you're getting fat and salt in the same thing. And I'm afraid orange juice too, again, going back, to, I think that's the sugar aspect again. So look, I try not to, especially at my age, I'm 59, and the last thing I want is a hangover. But that does sort of mop things up a bit. It was interesting what you said about the sort of Russian tradition of pickled things. I spent some time working in Ukraine and my Ukrainian colleagues were very fond of their vodka. But they were always insisting that we eat something and they always brought pickled things. So there were jars turning up. This was in the middle of the forest on a 
field trip and you have these huge big jars of pickled tomatoes and pickled pretty much anything. And when they were giving us this homemade vodka throughout the day, it, there was always something to eat with it every single time. So having something, especially pickled things, and I have to say it did work. So Charles's hangover cure, Marmite basically, eggs and stuff. My hangover cure, bowl of frosties. What about your hangover cure? Again, I think a sort of hearty breakfast, something a bit sort of solid and carby and actually sugary as well. Coke, I have to say, does help just to get the blood sugar levels back up again. But no, I think that and just drinking lots and, and unfortunately just taking painkillers. Try to avoid them too, obviously. I think the hair of the dog doesn't work. I mean, that's mm. uh, Kingsley Amos, whose son sadly recently, Martin sadly recently died, he thought that vodka was a pretty good thing to take in the morning with a hangover. And he, he mixed it up in various ways. And uh, Ernest Hemingway, another one not to follow for a healthy diet, he used to mix absinthe and champagne. But actually, the hair of the dog doesn't come from a, a drinking thing. It comes from a way of fighting rabies. And people used to believe that if you put a hair of the dog that bit you into the wound, that would uh, get rid of the problem. But really, there is no scientific reckoning that says that uh, drinking again on, on a hangover helps at all. I mean, that's an interesting one, because I, um, in the 90s, would sometimes on a Sunday morning, so I might have gone out on a Saturday night and had a big night, and then I would trot along to Holy Communion in the morning, a little sip of wine perhaps, not feeling great. But then I would go to a nice bar, El Rincon Latin in Clapham, where we'd have a Bloody Mary. And I have to say, the Bloody Mary really did perk me up if I'd had a rough night. I see tomato and tomato juice in a lot of the cures from around the world. So I think that might have been more to do with it than the extra kick of some vodka. And actually, that brings me to my favourite fact, if I may. So you said about how you like to do that and, and counter your excesses on a Saturday night with Sunday morning. And my favourite fact is that the meal that came out of uh, hangover curing is brunch. There's a man called Guy Berenger who in 1895 wrote an essay, Brunch, a Plea, in which he asked for people to be sensible and to make life brighter for Saturday night carousers, as he said, he proposed that instead of England's early Sunday dinner, a post-church ordeal of heavy meats and savoury pies, why not a new meal served around noon that starts with tea or coffee, marmalade and other breakfast fixtures before moving along to the heavier fare? And he won. This became a favourite meal for people who had overdone it on a Saturday night. And this is when a staple part of what we understand as brunch, Eggs Benedict, came in. That was specifically a favourite way of countering the effects of alcohol. So I rather like that in this rather bleak field where hangovers really don't have a cure, you may be able to jostle with them a bit and make them less painful. At least brunch came out of it, which is one of the great meals. Do you have anything that you want to add to no comments from a disappointed voice? Well, he knows a thing or two about hangovers. That disappointed voice, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> two, two pints of water before you go to bed. Is oh, the, uh... yes. So... That takes us to the end of all of our topics. And at this point, our disembodied voice completely undemocratically chooses a winner. So, having listened to us all, what do you say this week? I'm drunk on Charles this week. <gasps> right. well, it's Yay! been a very long time. Thank you, disembodied voice. I was feeling a little neglected. Oh, well, well it was good. Yeah. Good one. A deserved win, don't you think, Kat? Absolutely. I love some of those. And I don't think I'm going to try them, but at least now I know what not to do next time. Congratulations. See, we were all very nice to each other this time, aren't I we? Know, it's so, so lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm welling up. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. 
But before we go, we have to decide on our topics for next week. So I've decided that I'm going to be looking for the best facts I can find on menageries. Charles, mm. your topic for next time, I believe it's going to be nannies. Wonderful. Mm. And Richard, what can you find out in seven days about divination, please? Okay, okay I shall look one. into it. Can you not tell already? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, sorry, I had to do that. But that's it for this week. So thank you so much to everyone out there for listening to the podcast. If you did like what you heard, please do subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review because it really does help other people find us. You can also suggest some rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email. Rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com Thank you so much to everyone who's already sent us messages. And each week, one of us will be in our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph discussing a favourite fact or two. So, in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, the proper order of things is often a mystery to me. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. First taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.